Hello, tis the season of goblins, ghosts, and witches. At least, that was the hope at the time of writing this intro. Hopefully it is still that season. I am, I believe, on track to get this released by Halloween. So, my name is Steve, and I hope that you enjoy this review, regardless of when it's released. Two Octobers ago... I released my full ranking of the Halloween franchise up to Hollow 18, so Halloween Ends and Halloween Kills would not have been in there as they, they did not exist at that time. I also released a review of John Carpenter's Halloween 1978. Last October, I released my review of Halloween 2, which I think was a particularly good episode of mine, and I probably won't be able to live up to that with Halloween 3. There is no real gossip or juicy theories to be had with this movie. Let's get this review moving along. It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon. And remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it. And don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. In this section, I like to take a guess at what both Rotten Tomato scores are, as well as what IMDb's score is. Before revealing all of them, let's start with the Rotten Tomatoes audience score for Halloween 3. The Rotten Tomatoes system is not necessarily a rating of how much people like a movie, but instead whether or not they like it. My guess for the audience score is going to be that 68% of the audience liked the movie. Honestly, I won't be surprised if it is quite a bit higher because despite this movie being shunned for many years after its original release, since Rotten Tomatoes has existed, there has been an underground appreciation for the movie and I would imagine that those are the folks who will end up making a good percentage of the votes for the movie, as others just may not waste their time looking at an old movie like this. For the Rotten Tomatoes critic score, a lot will depend on how many reviews from when this movie was first released made their way onto Rotten Tomatoes. As sometimes they do bring along, like, people, old critics, will bring their old reviews and upload them onto Rotten Tomatoes' website. However, I would think that this movie was probably not on their priority list to, the, to do that, at least for individuals who don't have a team that could have done that for them. So, I will guess that 56% of the critics liked Halloween 3. I'm probably too high on this, but from a critical point of view, there are a lot of impressive things in this movie to appreciate. And now, for my last guess, the IMDb score, which differs from Rotten Tomatoes as it is a rating of how much people liked the movie on a scale of 1 to 10. Somewhat to the opposite of Halloween 2, in my experience, most people who do have an affinity for this movie also understand that it is not a masterpiece. So I don't expect too many 10s or 9s that will be propping the score up too much. So I will take a guess of a 5.4 out of 10 for the IMDb score. And now it is time to find out how I did. For the Rotten Tomatoes audience, I guessed 68%. And with over 50,000 votes tallied, the actual audience score is currently sitting at 28%. 
what was I thinking with my guests? Like, what was I thinking? Clearly, I have partook in the opinions of too many Halloween fans. In my defense, I just assumed no one else has watched this movie over the past 30 years besides basically Halloween fans and, like, movie fans of maybe with an affinity for the horror genre, but oh well. Did bad there. For the critics score from Rotten Tomatoes, I guessed 56%, and with 32 critics weighing in, the actual critics score is currently sitting at 47%. I will be interested to look into those reviews. Any mentioning that this isn't part of the Halloween franchise will be ignored. That is not a legitimate reason to knock the movie itself. And now for the IMDb score, which I guessed was going to be a 5.4 out of 10. The actual IMDb score with 53,384 submissions is currently a 5.1 out of 10. Men distinctly enjoy this movie more than women, and the 20 young souls who watched this movie liked it a lot more than older audiences. 11% of the audience gave it a 1, and I can guarantee you those are people who complain that Michael Myers isn't in the movie. I take a look at those three numbers and the spread of scores on IMDb, and it is what it is. This movie is not for all audiences, however I do think that it performs much better if you disassociate it from Michael Myers slash the Halloween franchise. You will not walk away thinking that it is the best movie ever. You may not like it, but if you are a movie person, you should find things to appreciate about it. And I think that the 50% of folks who gave this movie between a 4 and a 7 would agree with that. Let's skedaddle on over to some of my overall thoughts and some general information about Halloween 3. You don't really know much about Halloween witchcraft. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red. Halloween, the dead might be looking in. Stop it! The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. Happy Halloween. Halloween 3, season of the witch, the night no one comes home. Rated R, now playing at a theater near you. For some reason, I never remembered uh, to write down what year this movie came out. It's early 80s, we'll go with. Halloween 3 is 1 hour and 38 minutes long. It is, well, I would call it a sci-fi horror mystery, and it is rated R. There is obviously going to be some gore. Some of it being fairly graphic, but not so realistic that it should do anything more than make you look away from the screen for a moment. There are a couple of sexual moments as well, however I do not think that there is actually any nudity in the movie. It does get very close though. I would consider this movie to be safe for 14 and up almost almost surely, and a television cut being safe for around the age of 10 and up. You know, I don't have kids, so sometimes I may not be the best person to ask for that, but those are the ages that I'm thinking in my head and roughly how I would have, um, you know, seen them as, as a younger kid myself. So, what is the plot synopsis here? IMDb says, Kids all over America want silver shamrock masks for Halloween. 
Dr. Daniel Chalice seeks to uncover a plot by Silver Shamrock owner Connell Cochran. I think that that is a bit too basic of a plot description, yet I like it because it doesn't reveal any of the twists and turns, regardless of how amazing the reveals are or aren't in this movie. I would just add that the plot being uncovered has to deal with modern technology and ancient myth, intersecting in a James Bond-esque villainous plan. So, if that sounds interesting to you, maybe you'll really enjoy this movie. It, it is unique, it's different, definitely has that going for it. All in all, the movie is a letdown for myself. The evil plot is, it is silly, it is James Bond-esque, and it lacks any real motivation. Additionally, I think the final third of the movie falls apart due to structural issues. That said, there is a lot of great atmospheric world-building, sound design, and mystery going on for much of the movie that could have left to a pretty darn superb movie. If you popped out of an alleyway with the silver shamrock mask on, startling me, and asked, out of five stars, what would you give Halloween 3? I would probably default to three out of five. And then as I walk down the road, sidewalk a minute or two later, I would be thinking to myself that maybe I should have gone a little bit lower to like a two point something. I'm not sure. Depends the day that you catch me, I suppose, there. The issue for me is that I have gotten to a point where I appreciate what this movie is and I can enjoy much of the film. However, it never quite hits the mark for me. I like it more in my head than how I actually feel immediately after having watched it. Now, my opinion, it is great, I admit that, but it is only but one man's opinion. So, let's hear what others thought by going through some positive and negative reviews from both the critics and the audience before getting to those. However, I would like to start out by covering something about how expectations ruin this movie and a small bit of evidence that I stumbled into through this process to help back that statement up. As time has passed and viewers understand that this movie is not a Michael Myers movie, prior to going into it, opinions of it have gotten better. This is something that I have personal experience with, as, as I have mentioned in the past, these movies were most often seen by myself around Halloween on, I think it was the AMC channel, during Halloween marathons, which I have had this year up on my TV while working on stuff nonstop, and I often would doze off or get distracted throughout portions of Halloween 2 and Halloween 3, to the point that for Halloween 3, I never I really watched it from front to back. And after a few years, I wondered, when the heck does Michael show up in the movie? I'm like, I have to stay up and watch this sometime. I believe I, I made it to that point, but it makes the movie much worse when you're expecting something that never happens. You're just sitting there watching it, waiting, anticipating, and it never happens, and so you're not able to enjoy the movie. And this is important when it comes to the negative reviews. That's not my evidence. In 
support of how expectations have ruined this film for many. That is just a personal anecdote. My evidence comes right here. Prior to the year 2016, five of 16 reviews were positive. Since 2016, nine of the 14 reviews have been positive. So almost double less reviews have been positive since 2016. That is not damning evidence. It is flawed evidence, and it utilizes an arbitrary cutoff. There is no real significance to the year 2016. I do believe it would be earlier than that that this movie started to get an underground appreciation, but there is some significance to that date. It's just not evidence that can be totally ignored. So, let's move on to the positive reviews from this movie, and we'll start off with the critics' positive reviews the first one, I'll have three of them here. So the first one comes to us from Jeffrey M. Anderson of Combustible Celluloid, who gave it three out of four stars, and Jeffrey says, The actual movie is filled with amusingly strange ideas, some supremely dark, horrific material, and some flat-out kooky stuff. Then the next positive review here from the critics comes from my man, Cody Leach, of his own YouTube channel, self-titled Cody Leach, who gave it, the movie, four out of five leeches, and he says, that's not actually what he gives them, but he says that it's a shame this movie's legacy was killed by having the name Halloween attached. While Myers is nowhere to be found, what you do have is one of the most unique and creative horror flicks of the 80s. This is a twisted and campy classic for October. And I cannot ignore my boy Ken Hank, that is why we have three of these reviews, who writes for the Mountain Express, and he gave it three out of five somethings, and he says, Very particular variant on Invasion of the Body Snatchers, connected to the Halloween series in name only. Now, I also included this not only because it comes from my boy Ken Hank, but because that is a very significant aspect of this movie. However, I, I've i never seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I'm not familiar with some of the influences, you know, intimately familiar with some of the influences that go into this movie that are very apparent for some. So I wanted to make sure that Maybe you've never seen this movie, but you've seen some of those older classics um, that you're aware of that. So that might spark some interest into this movie to see how those connections are. I know a lot of people like those aspects to this movie, the, the connections that are there. Now, let's move on to the audience positive reviews. The first one coming to us from Chris B, who gave it four out of five stars. And Chris says, I liked it. First time seeing it, work its magic. Could have been worse, but could have been better. Love the hypnotic state, but if they kept away from gore and made it into a psychological thriller, would have been much better and scarier. Yet, I found it interesting. And a lot of my viewpoints are going to be pretty in line with Chris B. Now, let's move on to a review from a nameless source. I, there was no name attached to this review. And they gave it 3 out of 5 stars and said... It has some interesting ideas, but the plot is a little ridiculous and not as frightening as the other films. I also hated the main characters. Now, as we transition to some negative reviews, I do have one neutral review to help smooth over this transition. And this comes to us from Darcy C., 
who gave it two and a half stars out of five, and Darcy said, the only Halloween film not to star Michael Myers. I appreciate the writers for trying to broaden the brand. However, the plot never reaches its potential. Oddly lacking in tension and scares, the most memorable thing in this film is the brilliantly cheesy earworm that is Silver Shamrock's advert song, and you will get treated to plenty of that in this review. Now, on to the critics' negative reviews. The first one comes to us from Christopher Null of FilmCritic.com, and I apologize if that last name could be wrong. That might have gotten autocorrected. But Christopher Null gave it one out of five somethings, and he said, Oh boy, this is a howler. Justly ranked as one of the worst films in history and shocking in that it didn't kill Carpenter's career outright. Okay. From Chris Stuckman of ChrisStuckman.com, that is two N's at the end there, uh, who is also a YouTuber, very, very famous YouTuber for reviews. Chris gave it a, a D minus, and he says, It is absolutely atrocious. I admire the fact that they did try to propel the story in a different direction, but the story they chose was insanely boring. That's a common complaint of this movie, and I won't shy away from it. And last up for the critics here is a negative review that is almost built to argue against the argument so far that I've given uh, in favor of this movie. And this comes to us from Jermaine Lussler of io9.com, that is the number nine, who does not like this movie and says, Expectations are not, it's just not very good. No wonder Michael Myers came back. At least the vapid presence was scary. And by that vapid presence, obviously referring to Michael Myers. Now let's go on to the audience negative reviews. The first one comes to us from is either Otavio or Octavio T, who gave it two out of five stars and said, This film, instead of the formula of the second film, this film seeks to innovate the franchise. However, this innovation brings us the worst of a horror movie and boring cliches that disintegrate the film's seriousness. The movie brings us uninteresting protagonists, uninteresting antagonists, uninteresting villains, and extras that don't matter and don't change anything in the movie all the time. I have to disagree there. Instead of creating an innovation in relation to the universe of Halloween, they present us with a boring movie that doesn't make anyone empathize with the characters and the plot. As I hopped in there and said, I do disagree with some of that, but there's a lot to agree with in that review. Then from Elias K., who gave this movie a half of a star out of five stars, you can already guess what this review is going to be, right? I said anything less than a one. I was really disappointed. I hoped for a good Mikkel Myers movie and got this. This is bullshit. There are a lot of negative reviews that stem from the fact that there is no Michael Myers in this movie. But, to be fair, there are plenty of people who don't like it regardless of Michael being in it or not. However, it long had a reputation as being one of the worst films in history, and I think that that level of hate has ver was very much due to expectations. It's clear that there are plenty of people who do enjoy this movie, and I would like to add 
that it's really well made, and in too many ways to warrant such a negative insult. It's almost time. Time for Halloween Fright. A Halloween night where no one comes home. For the first time on TV, Halloween 3. Season of the Witch, a debut network special presentation coming up next. Welcome to the walkthrough where I will be going through the beats of the movie as I analyze and set up the reasonings behind my scores in the technical ratings section. Just a heads up, I will not be going over the uh, third act as there's too many twists and turns and whatnot to, to potentially ruin for people, so if you have not seen the movie but enjoy this section, don't worry, I do cut it off at a certain point. This portion is lengthier and it will include some spoilers. I understand that this may not be everyone's cup of tea, and if not, now is a good time to check out the timestamps that I've provided in the description so that you can jump ahead to other sections. Once again, there were two commentary tracks for this movie that I also watched, meaning that I have watched the movie four times for this review. Frankly, the commentary tracks were both useless. The one with Tom Atkins in it, aka Father Doctor, as you will hear plenty throughout this review, would only be worth listening to if you're a huge fan of Tom Atkins. They don't talk about the movie much at all, and it's about 95% of it is an interview or what I wrote in quotes here, story time with Tom. Now let's begin the walkthrough. The opening title sequence has a very fitting and dreary soundtrack to go along with visuals that could easily be mistaken for a modern day cosmic horror film. Think like a title like Sensor or a Panos Cosmatos creation. 100% atmosphere as an analog pumpkin is created on a television screen before ending in a series of seizure-inducing flashes. Following that up, we are notified that we are in Northern California on Saturday night of October 23rd as a man comes running out in the middle of the road from under a bridge. As he gets closer, the synth music picks up in pace. Once again, the soundtrack is very moody. It evokes the fact that this man is running for his life, which is shortly therefore after confirmed as headlights appear from the distance with a slight sting. As the man attempts to get into a nearby trailer, we see two men in the car that approaches. From the vehicle, they look exactly like what you would expect two men from the government who've shown up after you've spoken out about an alien abduction would look like. MIB agents, men in black. In the first five minutes of this movie, it's a pure A plus for cinematography, production design, and sound design. High points all around for the inter initial introduction of the movie. 
In a struggle between the man running away and one of the MIB agents, a car crushes one of the men in black at an extremely slow rate, and he does not attempt to avoid that car either as he sees it coming for him. Negative points to acting, the production team, the director, I'm not sure. Negative points to all, maybe. It's at this moment that you realize that you're definitely not in for a perfect movie. Also, no words have been spoken, just a couple of low grunts, which are largely drowned out by the waves of mood coming from the soundtrack. The man appears to have escaped his attackers as we jump ahead one hour to a gas station. Raining and thundering outside, we work our way into the station to a gas attendant who is watching the television when the most obnoxious commercial airs with a big bolt of lightning and thunder the power is graciously cut off mid-commercial as our attendant notices something is afoot outside and we get another unfortunately pretty horribly acted death scene death ow i'm not sure as the man running from the MIB tries to give us a jump scare right before falling down, before pulling out and holding up a familiar from the commercials, children's Halloween pumpkin mask. And he whispers, They're coming! They're coming! As his last words. Cut to them driving away in the attendant's tow truck. The guy did not die, he was just exhausted, I guess. I, I thought he had died when I watched it. That's how over-the-top that acting is. As they pull away, in classic Dean Cundy and John Carpenter fashion, the camera stays totally still for a tick too long before the reveal from behind of a relentless stalker as he watches them drive off. The atmosphere is set, Nine minutes in, and we cut scene to a man arriving home to his wife with two gifts for his ungrateful little shits of kids. What did you bring us? Well, wait, this shit here. One for you, one for you. What's the matter? Don't you like them? Mom already got us masks. Silver shamrock, look. Nice try. Eight more days to Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. So, how you been? Drinking and doctor in great combination. Wait, is this the doctor from Halloween too? Okay. I will not. Cut to Father Doctor arriving at the hospital, and the patient is the man from the beginning, along with the guest, a station attendant who will, as things get a little bit shady, just kind of like sneaks out of the hospital. I, I don't know, it's kind of funny. Uh, the man is basically comatose, but then when he hears. He is brought back to reality, and he tells the doctor that they could kill us. All of us. Actually, it's more like, they could kill us! All of us! Which means that he's going to get the Jamie Lee Curtis treatment. Sedatives. 
Father, doctor, and nurse go walking down the hall, and this wonderful father gives his nurse a big old slap on the rear end before, you guessed it, a low sting in the soundtrack with the reveal of an MIB agent already on the premises from behind him, just very Dean Cundy, and they love those shots from behind the stalkers. Father Doctor has shown that he is inattentive to his children, to some extent. Father Doctor drinks and drives. He drinks and doctors. He is not only potentially unfaithful to his marriage, but also he sexually harasses his staff. Bets are open for this guy to be murdered in the next scene. Taking your bets now. I bet on it. The low humming growl of the soundtrack picks up as we are treated to several well-shot still scenes of the patient, empty hallways, etc. Up to this point, the parallels to Halloween 2 are pretty insane, actually. Father Doctor turns off the light in his office to take a nap at the hospital, and our MIB agent goes into the patient's room, gouging his eyes out and pulling away a rubber mask from his face. More points to the cinematography. There really are a lot of excellent shots, as I alluded to, and they're all well done at every turn of this movie so far. But negative points to the production team on the special effects. To be fair, the rubber mask pull there probably looked fine to um, even really good on older and smaller televisions, but it doesn't hold up so well nowadays. Now, as the MIB agent wipes his bloodied hands on a curtain, the nurse walks into the patient's room where he is currently wiping his hands. What are you doing in here? He walks past her. seeing the patient, and Father Doctor's nap is disturbed. He takes chase after the MIB agent, who casually walks out to his car, pours gasoline on his rubber face, flicks a lighter on, and then changes spots with a dummy before the car go BABOOM! Cut to police, etc. at the hospital, and Father Doctor gets a phone call from his ex-wife. What a surprise. Saturday night, he's got their kids, so that's in a week, right? Which should be the day before Halloween, I believe. Just keeping keeping track of the timeline here. Seems important to this movie. So we cut to the morning, and as things are settling down at the hospital, he's obviously not slept all night. A very young and attractive lady comes in to identify her father. No, not so young, but uh, compared to the doctor, quite young. She's there to identify her father, which is obviously the man who was murdered. And don't you dare think that this doctor is going to be above trying to talk to this lady. She is hot, and she is obviously in shambles about her dad. Seems like his kind of gal. Well, Father Doctor wasn't killed, and nor did he take advantage of that situation I just talked about to talk with the woman. Dare I say that they're building up a protagonist in him? I will begrudgingly give some early points to the writing for building up a character here. We know a lot about Father Doctor without spending much time with him at all. Additionally, a lot of plot cement was laid down in a pretty easy-to-follow way. It's not obvious in the right ways upon a first watch, but it is easy to understand while still keeping things a mystery. 
Now we jump to Wednesday the 27th, and we are at the coroner's office with Father Doctor, who, for no obvious reason, is running his own detective agency now, and he asks several questions to one of the lab techs at the coroner's office. She, the lab tech, and he kiss on his way out. Boys a frickin' playa! Jump to Friday the 29th at a bar. Michael Myers makes an appearance on the television, and his movie is being brought to you by... It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon, and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Ellie Grimbridge shows up at the bar. She would be the attractive woman who just lost her father. I saw you at the funeral. Thank you. I'm sorry about your father. Did my father say anything to you the night he died? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He said, tell Ellie I love her. Oh, a bad liar. Thank you, anyway. Wait a second. I saw something that night. I don't know. Your father came into the hospital and he... I thought he was crazy, out of his mind. He's hanging on to a Halloween mask. He wouldn't let it go. And what he said was, they're going to kill us all. And in a little while, he was dead. And I don't know what the hell is going on. Now, as far as his reaction, it feels a bit strong for where we are at as an audience. He has obviously been trying to figure this thing out all week, but we haven't been along for that ride. That said, points to the acting. I love his delivery there of... And I don't know what the hell is going on. And I don't know what the hell is going on. It's great. Cut to her showing him her father's shop. He had a children's store that sells toys or a, a, yeah, a children's store. They sell toys and trinkets of all sorts, including, of course, Halloween costumes. I've been doing some detective work. My father kept excellent records. October 18th, Merchants' Council meeting. He was there. I checked. October 19th, football game. He was there, too. October 20th, pick up more masks. Yeah, that's the kind your father had in his hand. October 21st, dinner with Minnie. Minnie Blankenship, he never showed up. He never called. So it's fairly obvious at this point that those masks are going to be a big part of the plot. Cut to... Father Doctor, on a payphone, making up an excuse to his wife for why he's not going to be home for some time, and he and Ellie are off to investigate with a, he's got a six or two beer. Once again, the camera remains long after our characters have left the scene. This time, to make for damn sure that the audience understands that something surrounding these masks is not wholesome. As the camera pans over to the nearby electronics store, we are treated to a commercial plane on about 10 screens. Cut 
forward to our detectives, Father Doctor and Ellie, driving way out into the boondocks to the Halloween Mask Factory, Silver Shamrock Factory, which is located in a predominantly Irish community. And they do not drive around this town without every single citizen noticing that some out-of-towners are driving around town. After the eerie display of person after person noticing them, including an MIB agent, we see a camera is also tracking their whereabouts, as well as everyone else in the town's whereabouts, obviously. They decide to rent a room at a local motel, mostly so they'll have a place to make a better plan, as they have noticed they are being watched. It isn't very long before one Connell Cochran slowly goes driving by them as they are getting set up with a room at this motel. This is immediately followed up with some comedic relief, something to spice up the movie. It's a loud RV that just comes trucking on into the motel with a colorful couple and their kid. They're all a bit of a mess. You get the picture, you get the idea of this family. Do love the costume work for them too. And that meeting is immediately followed up with a pissed off lady who comes barreling into the lot as well. She's coming back from the factory talking to herself about how upset she is that the Silver Shamrock Mask Company got their orders all screwed up and now she has to stay at this god dang motel again. That kind of thing. She's just not aware of anybody around her, just, uh, you know, slamming her car door shut, stomping on through, mumbling... This scene truly feels like a stage play that is introducing us to the characters that are going to flesh out this story, and maybe, in one way or another, help our heroes get to the bottom of things. That's not really the case, but they do serve a purpose to the movie, though not to any great extent. If you recall from one of the, I believe it would have been a negative review, there was a part of it where I didn't agree that... Um, the extras don't, you know, aren't involved in the plot, don't move the plot along, whatever, at all. And I disagreed with that. But here you can see I'm saying that there, there is some legitimacy to that claim, too. It's just not fully true. It's not like there's... They move the plot along a little bit here. You'll see their purpose. So this is about the 30-minute mark of the movie. This place is a zoo! Truer words have never been spoken... He is a gentleman, and he offers to sleep in the car or somewhere else. He's not trying to play sly either, when... Where do you want to sleep, Dr. Chalice? Whatever look you are imagining that she gives him with that tone that you just heard, and whatever look that you are thinking his reaction to this is, you're right on. What the hell is with this guy? The wife of the Loud family was also checking him out. Anyhow, he wastes no time and he accepts this invitation, sealing it with a kiss. It is uh, very confusing how this movie wants me to think of this man. Is this a parody of action movie stars? The James Bond of the movie world? I feel like it's clear the movie thinks that he is a womanizer and that he is bad for that, yet... I just don't understand what this movie... Eh, I don't understand. As we transition to nighttime, there are announcements made across the town 
via an intercom system which blasts out all across town, alerting the residents of curfew. The setting slash mood of this town is very clear and easy to understand. We are reminded of the town-wide surveillance as we see cameras moving and following the night to ensure everyone abides by the curfews. A little bit of a flub in the movie, I think, here with how these scenes are cut. But Father Doctor went out to grab a bottle for the night, and he runs into a homeless local on the way back to his room. I I ain't got no diseases. You mind if I have a drink? Mm. (laughs) Damn. Thank you. Hey, uh, just a second. You are... You happen to know anything about this Cochrane? Do I know anything? He made Santa Maria what it is today. Dried up little pile of nothing. Let me tell you something, mister. He brought in every damn one of them factory people from the outside. You think he'd hire me, local boy? No way. Turn me down flat. Talk about controlling, huh? All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Seen the TV cameras yet? He's watching you, friend. I guarantee you that. Hey, Cochran! Fuck you! It isn't too much later that the homeless man is met by two men in black in a meeting that would end with his head getting pulled right off of his body. Loki, good effects on the head pull, points to the production design. Ellie is also coming back to the room. It appears that she has bought a soda pop for the night and she runs across Marge. We met Marge briefly before and she's here to pick up some Halloween costumes direct from the factory because mail orders... uh, suck now ever since the company got into bigger mass production the interaction between the two fails on a couple of levels it is the first time where i can feel the script and the acting coming into my living room negative points for both the acting and the writing they reintroduced marge for a reason she was first introduced for a reason she complains about the quality of the costume work because The little button with the company logo, it fell off. Shitty worksmanship. Once she is in her room, the button falls off all the way down to the floor, drops, and then the backside of it is facing up towards the camera, and it's clear that there is a computer chip of sorts on the back. After a little bit of tension, she notices it. Why would this computer, you know, why would their logo be on a computer chip, huh? She begins to toy with it, and suddenly, a laser beam blasts out of it. You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads. The laser absolutely destroys Marge's face, and then we see a bug crawl out of her mouth. It is sufficiently gross, pretty standard, but still quality 80s practical effects work here. Marge gets removed from her room. The fact that Connell Cochran would know about her death probably goes without needing to be said. Ellie and Father Doc meet Mr. Cochran for the first time outside of their motel room as she is being pulled off to her room, being put in an ambulance, and they're definitely curious about the circumstances of this situation, and they overheard the words misfire said by Connell Cochran. It's now the morning of Saturday, October 30th. One more day still Halloween, Halloween. Father Doctor makes a call to the morgue and asks that uh, 
that lady that he spoke to earlier to find out anything that she can about a Connell Cochran. It is then revealed that his phone is being tapped. Very obviously tapped, may I add. Father Doctor is now officially being spied on by the Men in Black. Perchance, Ellie and Father Doctor get to tag along on a guided tour by Mr. Cochran himself of the production of the masks. So they went to like the front of the factory to do some spy work early in the morning and then events happened. And so perchance, Ellie and Father Doc get to tag along. And I'm going to be generous here and give a point to the acting for Mr. Cochran's reaction when the loud and obnoxious family that we met earlier invites Ellie and Father Doc along for their tour. He has a brief moment of, no, 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 why'd you invite these spies into the production room? But Cochran maintains his composure to keep up appearances, and he goes along with the friendly gesture begrudgingly. You can just see him tense up a little bit. It's a good little acting moment. We also learn that Cochran is the godfather of childhood prank toys in this universe. You know, the chattering teeth type thing. And uh, something that I think uh, about that little storyline gets lost in this movie. And later, we will get a glimpse of the shenanigans that that plotline could have brought us down. Unfortunately, it's just not realized. For those who have seen the movie, I'm specifically talking about the knitting mannequin scene. Really, really liked that moment and could have been brought out through so much more. You know, that storyline could have been used so much more in this, but whatever. Back to our factory tour. The kid wants one of the fresh masks off of the production line, but Cochran insists that they haven't been through final processing yet. Something that is made clear through visual storytelling is that it hasn't had the little company logo with the laser chips added to it yet. We will toss cinematography the points for the visual storytelling there. The father of this loud family, also a top salesman of these masks, sure is curious about what this final processing is. Hey, Mr. Cochran, just what is the final processing? Uh, sure, it's just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Quality inspection, the seal of approval, you're not the usual. An attempt to make sure that the audience is catching on to what's going on. Cochran, in all of his arrogance, cannot help but sneak in this final cryptic language. And of course, a couple of trade signals. Father Doctor realizes he's under the watchful eye of the MIB guys. They are all around this whole premises, and he recognizes them as looking an awful lot like the guy who killed Ellie's father. At this moment, a garage door opens, and Ellie catches a glimpse of her father's car in their storage. As she makes a mad dash towards the vehicle, she is quickly headed off by four or five MIB agents, and even the family gets a little bit weirded out by the insane amount of security for what is a children's toys company. That evening, Ellie and Father Doc decide that it is time to go and they are packing up their things. Police are going to be called. The several hour time jump from the previous scene and their still heightened states of anxiety don't match, but it's a bit of movie magic that I am happy to overlook. It needs to be nighttime for spookiness, and the emotions of the viewer need to carry over as we move into the third act. It's almost time. Unsurprisingly, Father Doctor's attempts to call a police station do not go through. Outgoing calls are a dead end. 
he had to go to the front desk to make these calls. Father Doc heads back to the motel room. Ellie! Ellie is not to be found. Ellie! But five MIB agents are lined up in the parking lot, looking back at him as they begin to march towards him. The music cues up for a dangerous chase. Sneaking around town, trying not to be seen, Father Doc happens to be in the right spot at the right time, as he sees Ellie get taken into the mask factory. He attempts to call for help, but the town has a lockdown on all of the phone systems, so he has no other choice but to go after Ellie and sneak into the factory himself. He gets into a fight with an MIB agent, and right before being caught by two other agents, he defeats the agent, only to realize that they are robots of a sort. Sunday, October 31st. No more days till Halloween, Halloween. No more days till Halloween, Cochrane Industries. I suppose Cochrane wants to brag and show off all of his plans. So he brings Father Doc to his underground lair. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my underground lair. A place straight out of a James Bond film, complete with literally Stonehenge. A stone from Stonehenge is here in the lab. I bring up James Bond because at this point, Cochrane is very much an evil Bond villain. Father Doc is obviously Bond, and Ellie the Bond girl. It all works just like it does in any Bond film, which is giving away something there if you catch on to that. Apparently, the Loud family has been on a 24-hour tour, because they don't appear to have been taken captive, although they also don't appear to be here entirely of their own will either. Perhaps they came back out of politeness for the guy's boss, I'm not totally sure. Uneasy is the feeling that you get as they are walked through an ominous hallway with test rooms lining the walls. They go into one which is furnished like a living room, Father Doc is being treated to watching all of this as Cochrane reveals what his evil plans are and how he will accomplish them. At this point, I will leave it up to you to find out all that is happening in the ending of this movie because it is so batshit and insane that I could not, I can't explain it for you. Watch. <laughs> I think this whole thing is a big joke. I mean, look at this. <laughs> so what was my favorite scene of the movie? I I truly don't have one. There are a few lines or moments that are great, and I couldn't pick one of the ten or so of those that exist without writing them all down, which I did not do. If nothing else, I would say that I love the opening credits, and that's very much due to the soundtrack. 
Also, I wish the soundtrack was used more in this movie. I think I like it more than Halloween's soundtrack, or at least I think that it is technically better. Of course, the Halloween soundtrack is infamously awesome. Now, on to the technical ratings. First, there was Halloween. Then the terror continued with Halloween 2. Now, Halloween 3. The night no one comes home. In this section, I'll be looking at seven different specific factors and rating them on a scale of 0 to 10. Five of those factors are the pillars of filmmaking, and two of them are additional categories that I feel are relevant to accurately rating a movie. You may notice I don't rate editing. I did at one point, but I found it only to overcomplicate things. Just know that I'm aware of the editing and that it does rear its head in one way or another through this process. So let's get started with the writing. I have two things written down. Right where I left off for the walkthrough was a little over an hour into the movie, and there is another half hour left. This is a huge structural issue for the movie, and I think a big part of why it's not more largely liked. At that point in the movie, it feels like it's gearing up for the finale. But then it completely resets itself in order to info dump all of the mystery that is passed over for the first hour plus. And there's another 30 minutes before it ends. So probably there's like an extra 10 minutes of just stuff that completely kills the pacing of the movie. Should have been sprinkled through the movie a little better. Writing is what tanks this movie. It's not horrible, but it has major flaws, at the very least, at times, for basically every aspect of writing. For the characters, the plot, the dialogue, the structure of the film, truly every aspect of writing is, on the whole of the film, acceptable at best. I give the writing a 3 out of 10. Now on to the cinematography. The first thing about the cinematography is that there is a shot of Ellie and Father Doc escaping the factory, and I'm mixed about it. It appears that it is a matte painting with a superimposed shot in front, and there is a fire going on. In part, it looks super cheesy, and it's definitely not seamless. However, it's also a really beautiful shot. The colors and the composition are wonderful. The second thing about the cinematography that I wrote here is that the movie is shot using an anamorphic lens, as much of Dean Cundey's stuff is, and I truly love the cinematic feel that that brings to screens. It's a shame that they are used so rarely. So, I give cinematography an 8 out of 10. It's pretty darn good. Moving on to the sound design. Another just two things written here for that. Most of the soundtrack is moody, dramatic, and it fits the movie's plot to a T, and it lends itself perfectly to the mystery thriller that this movie mostly is. Second thing I wrote is that I only have one complaint about the soundtrack, and that's when it plays part of the soundtrack from Halloween. It doesn't fit this movie. I know that it is plain because it's on the TV in that scene, but it sticks out like a sore thumb for me. I give 
the sound design in eight and a half out of 10 really do love it. Uh, brought it up a few times in the walkthrough as well as all of these things received some points or knocks during the walkthrough. If you did not listen to that, there's more there. So now moving on to the acting. First thing I wrote, uh, why does Tom Atkins become so lethargic immediately upon his capture? It is so odd and sudden and not explained in any way. Second thing that I wrote is that Tom Atkins and Dan O'Hurlihy, I hope I got that right, Dan O'Hurlihy, who plays Connell Cochran, were excellent choices for their roles. I give the acting a 6.85 out of 10. It was Almost just a six, but Dan does far too great as Connell Cochran to ignore. He really is perfect for that role. Kills it. Loved it. The fifth aspect of tele- of, of film being production design. There are a few special effects that look rubbery, as I explained. I think the movie would have benefited from a little more Halloween fun. Kids trick-or-treating and also just having a briskness in the air. Both of those would have really helped to push the atmosphere and the season that this movie is built around. And the third thing for the production design is that the costume work, the sets, the locations, I think that they are all good and such. They are good choices. So give the production design a 6.85 out of 10. Moving on to the enjoyability rating, where I have four things I wanted to point out. First one, the beginning of the movie is setup scene after setup scene, and it's a bit clunky without any transitions between the, the, the scene from scene. It's easy to follow. It's not confusing or anything. It just lacks a good flow from one scene to the next. So uh, ruins the enjoyability a little bit, clunkiness. Then number two, this, this really hurts the enjoyability score here. Ellie the main girl, she wraps herself up in the bed sheets after coming out of the shower. I mean, that's like a sin, is it not? Who wants to go to bed with wet bed sheets? Come on. Number three here, as a critical look on commercialization and all that that entails, I appreciate that the movie has that messaging while not dwelling upon it. I enjoy that. And number four, what's Connell Cochran's gosh darn plan? It will take police officers all of an hour max to figure out who was behind his shenanigans that he's trying to pull in this movie. Like, what? Well, I don't get it. Enjoyable reliability rating. I gave a 5.3 out of 10. And for the in comparison to rating, which always changes a little bit depending on the genre of the film, um, or just sometimes it's compared to all movies. But for this movie... There is a certain rawness to the murder of the lab tech at the mortuary that hits as good as any horror movie kill does, lest there being any connection to that character. However, this movie is much more enjoyable and better if you approach it with the mindset that you are watching a mystery thriller that has influences from the horror genre compared to just a strict horror flick. So, in comparison to all mystery thriller movies... It's a genre that has not a lot of middle area, in my opinion. They're either really good or they suffer from a lot of the same issues that I have with this movie. However, some of the filmmaking is truly great, and that bumps this movie up into that very small middle area 
that exists for mystery thriller movies. I give it a 4.2 out of 10, as in, it's not that this movie is bad, it's just not exciting or incredibly memorable. But there is some sort of charm that the movie has due to its history, and simply the fact that it's aged now and it's from a different time at this point in cinematic history. Additionally, I'm going from the opinion that, because there are so many great movies that fit into this genre, even a 6 out of 10 within the mystery thriller genre would still be a pretty darn entertaining movie. So being at a 4.2 isn't uh, such a stretch when you think of a 6 still being a pretty darn great movie. Now... Time for the quick recap. All of these are out of 10 points, as you know. So, the writing, I gave a 3. The cinematography of this movie, I gave an 8. The sound design received an 8.5. Both the acting and the production design each received a 6.85 out of 10. And the enjoyability rating was a 5.3 out of 10. In comparison to the entirety of the mystery thriller subgenre, I gave it a 4.2. So we add all of those up and then we divide them by 7. And I give Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, a 6.1 on the nose out of 10. it is time for some interesting facts. The first five here will just be from uh, the internet, things that I found out. So the movie's novelization was published in 1982 by science fiction writer Dennis Etchinson under the pseudonym Jack Martin. Despite the movie's critical failure, the book became a bestseller and was even reissued two years after the movie's release in 1984. See, I told you this movie was made in the early 80s, 1982. The second interesting fact, at around 55 minutes into the movie, the voice of the operator that uh, Father Doc Chalice keeps getting when he tries to call out of Santa Mira is Jamie Lee Curtis. And I would like to inform you that as far as I know, this was never verified. It is only a rumor based on a similarity in the voice to that of Jamie Lee's. I don't think it's ever been verified, though. The third interesting fact here, did I say five? looks like there's six. So the third interesting fact here, using the original molds, the skull, witch, and jack-o'-lantern masks seen in the movie were mass-produced by Don Post Studios and sold in retail stores to promote the movie's release. Don Post was the creator of uh, two of the masks, and then the third one was a team effort. Interesting fact number four, it took over 40 takes to get the shot when Tom Atkins throws the skull mask onto the security camera. Director Tommy Lee Wallace revealed during the cast's 2015 reunion that the scene took longer than he expected because 
During the shoot, he playfully tossed the mast and it caught on the very first try. Come on, Tom. Now, on to interesting fact number five. From conception to completion, it took visual effects designer John C. Wash between three to four weeks to create the background for the movie's opening title, the one that I love. He went to USC with Tommy Lee Wallace and John Carpenter and would go on to do work on the movies The Thing and Escape from New York for the latter. What? I don't know why it says for the latter there. But he would work on The Thing and Escape from New York, also John Carpenter movies, also released in 1981 and 1982. So uh, they must have just been working on all these movies at like one time. And interesting fact number six in the commentary track, Tommy Lee Wallace mentions that he wanted the entire case of MIB agents to be pale. Oh no, this, this, this is not from the internet. This is my own interesting fact here. It's, I think, the best one probably. In the commentary track, Tommy Lee Wallace mentions that he wanted the entire, um, all of the MIB agents to be pale redheads. And I think that that would have been awesome and it made for an excellent touch in the movie. Definitely would have helped the mood and the setting in the movie, um, which that's, you know, two areas that the movie already excelled in, but sure would have been cool if all those robots were just all pale Irish redheads looking almost the exact same, more closely related. Um, would have been cool. Now on to some things that uh, I got out of the making of documentary, some notes from that that were... Um, interesting enough for me to write them down. The decision not to use the Michael Myers character was stupid, and why they decided to leave that, I do not know. It begins with a discussion from many of the production um, players about the idea for the direction of the Halloween franchise, with varying degrees of people saying they thought that it was a good idea to it being a bad idea, etc. My second observation is that Tommy Lee Wallace argues that him having sole credit for the writing of Halloween 3 is bonkers. He credits Nigel Neal for the original script and says about 60% of that moody, dark screenplay made it into the final cut. But the script did go through a couple of rewrites, beginning with one from John Carpenter, which he didn't care for, so then Tommy Lee did a rewrite of that version. Note number three, I was happy to hear Tom Atkins put his character on blast during this um, making of thing because he did not do that during his commentary track. So uh, here he is. I didn't feel very much like a medical professional because, I mean, right off the bat, I walk in, I walk into my house and Nancy Loomis is my wife. She's actually Tommy Lee Wallace's wife at the time while we were shooting. And um, I walk out on her and the kids have a couple of beers and run off with some young chick and head north. I don't know what the hell kind of a doctor I was. <laughs> a classic story, Spanky. And number four here, this remark from Tommy Lee Wallace suggests that he understood that the plot of this movie did not make sense. Which just a desperate director wanting to make his movie make sense. Now, I know that quote is out of context. To be, to be honest, I didn't fully understand the context in the documentary anyways. They did a little bit of an interview with Brad Schachter. 
who was the guy who played the kid in the movie, whose name is Little Buddy, uh, or that's what he's credited as, Little Buddy. And he explains that his experience in regards to his death scene and the funniest part is that all of the crickets that were a part of that scene were impossible to be wrangled up after shooting the scene, after they let them loose. So they were making these cricket noises all over the studio, which was driving people absolutely nuts on the set. I thought that was hilarious. And co-composer Alan Haworth, I think he was, I think that name sounds familiar from Halloween 2. Um, he talks about the creation of the commercial jingle, and although this was actually in one of the commentary tracks, I couldn't fit it in, but if you listen, the jingle is set to London Bridges falling down, falling down, falling down, London Bridges falling down, silver shamrock. London Bridges falling down, falling down, falling down. Tommy Lee Wallace actually did all of the voice work for the commercial and the jingle itself. Of course, the song was digitally altered. He can't make his voice go that high-pitched. I lost count. So here is the next note. Tommy Lee Wallace says that the experience after the film was released to such poor reception that that was a crushing experience for him. I do believe that everyone involved thought that they made quite the good little movie. Unfortunately, they forgot to set the audience expectations properly. But regardless, the backlash to the movie, I think, was taken quite personally by some that were involved. If you understand the John Carpenter group, it is truly like this little family that all came onto the scene together. So I think at the time, they really were putting their heart and soul into this movie. Here's Tommy Lee Wallace talking about his experience in 2010 as he found out that this movie was gaining in appreciation from audiences. I lived for years and years with the certain perception that it had been a failure and that not very many people liked it. I knew I thought it was a good movie and I knew that John thought it was a good movie and uh, Deborah. And so that was good enough for me. It hurt that it didn't find an audience, but what can you do? You just have to butch up and uh, go on with your, with your career. Let's uh, bring up the man of the hour here. We got Tommy Lee Wallace right here. <laughs> Writer and director. So one thing, I'm never, never quite sure. Is she a robot the whole movie or do they turn her into one at the end? I don't know. <laughs> Why ask me? When I went there and signed some autographs and shook hands and took photographs with people, I had, I, I was flabbergasted at how many people adored Halloween 3 and took it to their hearts and thought it was a fine movie and enjoyed the hell out of it. That was the first inkling I had that anybody cared. It may have taken around 30 years for the movie to be appreciated, but I am happy for everyone involved that it found its audience, and to be fair, it probably would be forgotten if not for the Halloween tag on the, on the movie in the title. And maybe that's not the case. It, it very well could have gotten an earlier cult following, but the lesson here is, sometimes good things just take a little bit of time. 
And that's it. Thank you very much. I love you. You take care. I'll see you again someday. Not super soon. Christmas. I'll have to do a Christmas movie.